back in the day, I would just be like, yeah, my parents are from India. I'm Indian. But even as I would say those things, I, I didn't feel comfortable saying that. I didn't in my heart identify as that. So because of activism and because of um, coming to terms with my identity, I've become more comfortable in saying, I don't consider myself Indian. I consider myself a Sikh Punjabi Canadian. And I've become more comfortable in explaining what that is to people that don't know what that is. Hello and welcome to Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zorian Institute that analyzes and celebrates both the diverse and common experiences of diasporas living away from their homeland. I'm your host, Jen Haddo. In this week's episode, we're discussing diaspora influence and the homeland-hostline relationship. We explore the concept of transnational activism and the range of ways in which diasporas can mobilize and advocate for homeland causes. Diaspora communities can be a powerful tool for change and form robust networks worldwide. Speaking out and sharing more about the needs of the homeland can raise awareness, educate, and engage the hostland, in this case, Canada. But what impact does this have on individual identity formation? Are there risks to active participation in diaspora activism? And how does social media come into play for diaspora activism and influence? We explore all this and more with this week's guests, Taiwo Bello and Ravneet Mann, both active advocates for their homeland communities. Taiwo Bello is a senior doctoral student in African history at the University of Toronto, where he works as a teaching assistant and course instructor. He is currently a Vanier Scholar, a Martin Klein Fellow, and Carmen Brock Fellow in African history. His research interests include gender and women's studies, violent conflicts and genocide, international history, diaspora studies, digital humanities, and Africa in the 20th century global history. Also joining us is Ravneet Mann. Ravneet is a legal marketing professional in Toronto, Canada. After obtaining her Bachelor's of Arts, specializing in sociology and education from University of Toronto in 2014, she started her role as program coordinator at the Zorian Institute. And this time, Ravneet coordinated several of the Institute's programs, including the Genocide and Human Rights University program, the Syrian Refugee Oral History program. And her time at the Institute combined with her family history led Ravneet to develop a keen interest in advocacy for social justice. So we like to start our episodes by getting to know our guests a little bit more. Ravni, let's start with you. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about where you're from, where you live at the moment, um, and maybe your family's reasons for migrating to Canada? Yeah, definitely. Uh, first of all, Jen, thank you. And thank you to the Institute for having me. I'm happy to be here to chat with you all. Um, so a little about me. I am from Canada, actually. So from Toronto, born and raised in Toronto. Um, my family, my parents specifically, is from Punjab, which is a region, a north Western region in India. Um, and they immigrated to Canada, well, my dad in the 70s and my mom in the 80s. Um, and their story of migration, I guess you could say it's the, it's, it's kind of like the typical story of a lot of immigrants um, to Canada. You know, they aren't happy or satisfied with the opportunities in their homeland in terms of education, career, um, and just like socioeconomics uh, positioning. Um, and they move to a country that is, you know, more developed like Canada or the States uh, in search of better opportunities for themselves, but also for their children. Um, and, and that's, I guess, what my parents were thinking of before they had me and my sister. Uh, and they had 
lived through their experiences. And I guess they knew that they didn't want those same experiences for their kids. Um, so that's why they moved to Canada. Did they settle in Toronto directly? Was that the first place they came? So my dad actually settled in Vancouver for a couple of years. He had a sister that lived there and she had moved she had come to Canada just a few years before him. And so he lived in Vancouver for a couple of years and then he moved to Toronto. Um, and my mom actually came to Toronto. Directly. So, right. Yes, exactly. And they've been there ever since and you and your siblings were born there and, and that's kind of where you grew up as well. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yes, exactly. And Taiwo, your experience coming from Nigeria, could you tell us a little bit more about that um, and where you reside now and maybe a little bit more about that story? Okay, um, thank you so much for that um, question. And first, I, I also want to say that um, I really appreciate, you know, um, the fact that you invited me to this um, very event. Um, it is one that I'm so passionate about, you know, when you think about, you know, activism, um, um, human rights, um, uh, migration, and um, I'm from Nigeria. I'm still Nigerian. Um, I was born and, you know, brought up in Nigeria before I traveled out of Nigeria to Switzerland, where I did my master's. I had my bachelor's degree back in Nigeria at the University of Ibadan. Then I went to Switzerland in 2011, Then I, where I studied um, international history and politics at master's level. Um, and then in 2016, I came to Canada. So my coming to Canada was in 2016, August to be precise. And um, I also came to study as well. Um, I came to um, study uh, political political science, what they call political studies there at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. So Saskatoon was my first um, experience of Canada. So when I finished, um, that very program in 2017. Then I came to the University of Toronto um, to study at the PhD level. Great. Well, thank you both for sharing a little bit more about your history, your family's history, and coming to Canada and growing up in Canada. I think it'll be really interesting considering those two different backgrounds to hear how you both became involved in advocating and, act and being active for your homeland communities. So when we think about diaspora activism, traditionally, it's centered around financial support and or political affairs. In recent years, however, diaspora activism has evolved to a more concerted effort to improve the lives of the people in the homeland more broadly. So diaspora members in the host land now play a more central role or can play a more central role in lobbying for support and actively campaigning for social issues, uh, to just name one, in the homeland. A London School of Economics research project studied the involvement of diaspora communities in their hostland, and it found that in many cases, this newer generation of diaspora members find ways through volunteering or working for NGOs and policy work even to make positive changes in their homeland beyond just this financial or political support that we've seen in the past. In return, they form this really unique dynamic channel for ideas and for beliefs um, and for value systems between the homeland and the hostland. So thinking about this, I'd love to hear from you both how you got involved with either being an activist or being an advocate for your homeland from the hostland. Was there a particular issue that called you into this? Um, did you join a conversation and then suddenly you're, you're an advocate and, and 
active in participating around the conversation. Taiwo, maybe we'll start with you. How did you get involved in advocating for your homeland from the host uh, room? Okay, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, I thank you for that. Um, so, I mean, as you all know that um, there's a lot of a lot of issues that break the heart um, going on, a lot of development going on in terms of governance in, in Africa today. I'm from Nigeria, a country where you have, you know, over 200 million um, people, but less than less than 10% could gain access to job, right? Um, so if you think about that, then you would realize that there would be a lot of poverty uh, ravaging the lives of um, people living there in that country. So what I what I try to do is to try to get my my colleagues who are left behind at home together, get to get them to wake up to their responsibilities, um, political responsibilities, for instance, um, not just voting, but letting them realize that there's a difference between living in Nigeria and living outside of Nigeria. I have traveled to so many parts of the world. I mean, developed and you know, underdeveloped as well as developing uh, the United States, uh, places in Europe, and, and now I'm here in Canada. And uh, I've been able to see what development uh, entails, right? I've seen how um, government should be run. But I don't see element of such. All these things that I've seen in these several countries that I've visited um, play out anywhere in Nigeria or within the governance structure in Nigeria. So what I try to do is that I use my, my Facebook platform, my um, WhatsApp um, platform. Uh, so I use this to sensitize my friends or my colleagues and you know those who care to hear that, look, the way our country is being run is not supposed to be. Uh, if a government really wants to do something, the government would do it if the will is there. So I have been in this country. I have no urge to want to run back to Nigeria to do anything. It's because the political system is working. So I try to create awareness in that way. I use my my diaspora experience and I, to, to uh, help people to wake up wake up to their political responsibilities and also to fight um, for their rights. And apart from that, I'm also very active within the space of education, especially international education. Um, I obtained my bachelor's um, degree back at the University of Ibadan, which happens to be um, the premier uh, university in the country. But everything in that country now has gone down to the extent that education, you know, a bachelor's education is worth nothing. So what I try to do is to distribute scholarships opportunities through um, one of my platforms that I have on Facebook called Research Line for Africans. Um, I created that page for Africans to be able to access um, like scholarship uh, opportunities, you know, funding um, postdoctoral opportunities, also jobs. And so far, I know I'm still counting about 13, 13 Africans have secured um, scholarships and funding through that. Uh, so so these are the, the little ways in which I try to 
um, reach out and give back to my people back home. Thank you, Taiwo. That was fascinating to hear, especially the aspect of, of encouraging and motivating and even on a level, it sounds like empowering your your network and your community in the homeland to maybe look at the comparison of your experiences here and in other countries you visited and lived and to look, take a closer look at what's going on in Nigeria itself. So Ravneet, to turn that question on you, was there a specific issue that called you into advocating and, and activism for your homeland? Or was it maybe just a conversation you became part of over time? Uh, yes. So I wouldn't say there was a specific issue per se, but I will touch on the role that storytelling played growing up um, throughout my childhood. And um, this is something that a lot of uh, people in the Sikh diaspora can identify with. We've all grown up hearing the same stories from our parents and our grandparents. Um, and just to go back a little bit, the Sikh diaspora, diaspora refers to a group of ethno-religious, it's a minority, a minority group of ethno-religious people in Punjab. Um, and they have a history of being persecuted for centuries and centuries on. Um, used to be more overt, of course, and in modern days, it's more, of course, systematic, uh, systemic. Um, and so this idea of storytelling, of hearing the trauma from grandparents, uh, staped sort of uh, sponsored violence against, against Sikhs in India, that's what I grew up hearing. I heard of uh, relatives and their fat parents or their grandparents um, going, leaving home from work one day and not returning back, um, missing and, uh, you know, uh, massacres, um, especially in New Delhi in 1984, those kind of stories. Uh, so I think this contact, concept of storytelling really connects the diaspora based on this shared experience. It creates that shared identity, uh, that idea of shared resilience and determination uh, to overcome those struggles and prosper as a community. And that really is a motivating factor for, I know, the Sikh community here. Um, I guess Taiwo also touched on this uh, as well, creating that sensitivity in our social media networks. Uh, that's where I I, you can say I became involved in activism. I wouldn't call myself an activist per se. I don't vigorously, you know, campaign um, and lobby for social change. I do the best that I can to raise that awareness within Canada and with my, within my own network and my friends. Uh, and it's, again, that concept of uh, not allowing history to repeat itself. Uh, we're fortunate that we live in Canada, and I'm fortunate that my parents chose Canada as their coastland. Um, we can speak out without being punished, uh, you know, speak out about social issues, advocate for change. And that's where I've used Instagram as a platform, uh, Twitter as a platform. And I think that raising that awareness and even just... Um, Having your friends that wouldn't know about issues that occur in, in your native country, having them message you and ask you, you know, what is this about? What's going on? And being ex able to explain the problems to just one person, I feel like it's a ripple effect that just, you know, it spreads. Um, local news channels pick up the issues. And within the Sikh diaspora, there's always this need to control our own narrative. 
the Indian government, it has has its flaws. It's a corrupt government. And the narrative pushed by one government, the government is sometimes different uh, than the narrative pushed by uh, the group that's, you know, in the field that's going through these um, social injustices. So just promoting that, your, our narrative in Canada, in the local news, is sort of the goal to show the government back in the native land that, you know, the world is watching. Where the world is watching the corrupt laws that you're trying to enforce, the corrupt regulations that you're trying to for, enforce that are sort of, that are ultimately, um, you know, detrimental to a specific group of people. So I think that's where my activism comes into play. And that's how I got involved. Through that storytelling element, which I think is when we talk about diaspora more broadly is a is a critical part and a common element found in diasporas for people all over the world um, and forming that collective memory. And I think you really highlighted it there with that telling your own narrative or at least being able to share elements of the narrative that are left out by institutions, governments, even mass media. And we'll talk about social media a little bit more further on the episode because I know you're both very active on it or have been active on it in sharing and sensitizing. I think this is a key term we've found in already in this discussion and it's really critical. Um, like we were, I was mentioning earlier, the, the diaspora activism is changing and it's shifting and it looks different. And social media has definitely been a big element of that. And I think we've seen it not just with diaspora causes, but social issues and social justice issues in the past year, especially. Um, we've seen how important and how critical social media can be in that. But while we talk about you know, making statements on social media, we've touched on that. You're both using that as a platform. We have seen and there are documented instances where groups and activists, even individually, and even maybe advocates, we don't want to say activists fully, um, can be threatened or can have privileges revoked. Sometimes even the right to enter a country or family members, it can have a ripple effect on those who reside in the homeland, um, can face danger or threats to their security. From these occurrences, we know that there can be a cost to activism and to advocacy, whether it's a large or a small cost. So I would love to hear from either of you if you've ever been met with resistance. Maybe it's not threats or kind of privileges revoked, but any level of resistance when becoming involved in homeland politics or even politics within the hostland that relate to your home country. Um, do either of you want to start? Or if not, I'm happy to pick on one of you. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that I've been met with resistance personally, but I have definitely seen it firsthand, like in terms of um, on social media. I've seen, I've seen friends' accounts being disabled. I've seen... Uh, actual like for example state sponsored instagram accounts twitter accounts that push this um propaganda of the government um even like for example social media trolls commenting on posts that are are meant to raise awareness but trying to take away from that narrative that you know that we're trying to push out um which is our narrative and so that's the type of resistance that I've seen. I have seen some extreme cases of uh, some more prominent uh, people in the Sikh diaspora that, you know, really advocate and lobby for change 
it goes as extreme as the Indian government denying them a visa to visit India, even though they don't pose any threat to the government and no, no violence. It's just a matter of um, the government being threatened by this uh, this other narrative, right? Um, so, so yeah, I think that's the resistance that I've seen, but I haven't, ex- again, experienced it myself. Right, but it sounds it's prevalent in the community. People are facing at least some level of consequence, I guess yes. we could say, for choosing to speak out about issues that are happening in the homeland from the hostland. Taiwo, you, you wanted to contribute to this this question. I think we have several examples, you know, that would come from, from Africa uh, and Nigeria, to be specific. Uh, just recently, uh, a group of people... Uh, fighting for their own independence. They want to like break away from Nigeria. They have tried this um, between 1967 and 1970. Uh, the people called uh, Biafras um, during the Nigerian Biafra war. So these people tried first in the 60s and then they were defeated by the Nigerian government in the, in the civil war, the very first and the only major civil war that we've experienced in post-colonial Nigeria. Um, the people in, in, in the diaspora, when they go home and the government perceives that they are supporting this group, what the government does is to incarcerate them, you know, arrest them and lock them in prisons. So there are so many people, you know, uh, members of this very splinter group in, in prisons today. And even the leader of that very group called Namdi Namdi Kanu is hiding away in, in in Britain and sometimes in 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 Israel. So he can't go home. And the government, the Nigerian government has people who monitor the movements and activities of this group, not only in Nigeria, but also outside of Nigeria. So you have groups that are fighting and supporting these groups that are based in, in, in the country, but they can't go to Nigeria because of their loyalty towards that group that is anti-state or anti-Nigeria. And right. just recently, in order for the government to totally clamp down on these people, having realized that these people were using Twitter to spread anti-Nigerian information or propaganda, as the Nigerian government would, would call it, the Nigerian government banned Twitter just recently. Um, some Yeah, I believe I saw like just within the past couple of weeks. Yes, just correct? a few weeks yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. So the government banned Twitter. And what the, the government's claim is that the, this very group is using, using Twitter to spread hate or hatred amongst Nigerians. But Nigerians don't see it that way. Right. So you've seen almost firsthand the, the resistance or the pushback that can be can be felt when you speak out or when you try and raise awareness about homeland issues. So if we think about political interests, we've just started speaking about that. So I'll uh, follow up with a question on when we look at, there was a study done in Canada's Indian diaspora um, and it looked at political interests and how those are either embedded or sometimes even articulated in terms of Canadian norms and Canadian discourses on human rights, uh, democracy, and sometimes even economic advancement. So 
Ravneet, do you think living in Canada, growing up in Canada, and the Canadian values that you hold, do you think that's influenced the way and your willingness to advocate for the causes you do? Um, and in your experience, maybe you can even name some that have in, influenced you to speak out about certain causes in your homeland and your native land. Yeah, I think that living in Canada, growing up in Canada has a, has had a huge impact on, you know, the things that I call out in India, um, the things that I call out uh, the government for. Um, and of course, like we can't forget that Canada, of course, has their own has their own issues, and as they've come to light, especially over the last couple of weeks. But um, it's important to sort of also acknowledge that you know the freedom of speech, and like I mentioned earlier, not being punished or reprimanded for for saying certain things against against a government. That's that's a huge deal, and that's a huge sense of security to have um, to freely be able to voice those those concerns and um yeah i think it's actually interesting because when i look at my parents uh they you would think that they have and they do have a much stronger connection to the homeland because when i think of india when i think of punjab i don't necessarily necessarily consider it my homeland um i my connection is more towards the culture uh the community the people uh but when I look at my parents, even though they have the stronger roots in India, they don't really um, sort of act, like they they talk about it in conversation and discussion with relatives and friends. But there's no sense of real activism. And um, and I think that partly has to do with a generational gap as well, like being a millennial myself. I feel like we almost have this advocating activists um sort of uh innate yes it is almost innate i was gonna innate. say yeah. exactly some it's not a trait but it's sort of some sort of like automatic like a trend a trend right yes exactly um being a canadian being a millennial um being a second generation immigrant all of that has played into why i do advocate for, advocate for social change and for social justice in india I think, yeah, that combination of second generation and, mm -hmm. and Canada is, as you rightly said, Canada obviously has its own issues, but there is some, I think there is a level of, I don't want to say understanding, but there's a, a move towards speaking out about global issues or advocating for global issues. Um, and that obviously then combined with being from or having connections to a land, to a country that's experiencing social issues then those, when you combine those together, are almost a perfect storm for using your platform to, to even just raise awareness. Um, maybe if you're not an activist, but you're just sharing that with someone who this is their first time hearing about it. Taiwo, I want to I ask you, how do you reconcile competing issues of activism in the homeland or the hostland? So how do you, on a day-to-day, -day, not just in Canada, but in other places you've lived, um, how do you reconcile being an activist and dealing with maybe not too many homeland issues and trying to care about hostland issues? And how do you juggle both of those elements? Here that I am today, I don't, I don't, I know that, I mean, as um, Ravnit mentioned, and as you also uh, mentioned, you know, Canada has its own issues. I mean, no country in this world does not have its own issues, right? But the Canadian issues that I see are nowhere near 
the series of issues that we have in Africa or in Nigeria, my own, my own country. So the first thing that I think about first, if you know, on daily basis, is how to better the lives of the people that I left behind in Nigeria. Right. Um, so I'm more concerned about what goes on in Nigeria than what goes on in Canada here, because I know that if anything happens in Canada, they've got policies in place to deal with those things. And if anybody breaks such law, the law would catch up with, with the person. But it's not the same in Nigeria. So I think more about the Nigerian situation, the African situation, where you have policies, but the policies are not delivering, you know, any you know, positivity or positive, you know, reward or outcomes for the people or for the benefits of the people. And these are the things that motivate me to speak out against the government and also try to sensitize uh, my friends and my colleagues and those who um, are willing to listen to me about how much the country or the economic situation in the country has deteriorated. So I think about the extent of poverty that goes on in Nigeria today. So that's so reconciling it with that of Canada. Really, if if they were comparable, yes, I could say yes. One can reconcile, but they are not. They don't. They don't stay. They don't. They don't fit beside each other at all. What Canada experiences today is way, way, way below what we experience. So I think more about how to help improve the lives of those that are trapped in abject poverty back in my country. So that homeland tie, that commitment to to your homeland and to the people of it is is strong. There's a, a real demanding element of raising awareness and being constantly in tune. I think that's a, a diaspora experience that lots of people can relate to, being either reading the news or staying in touch with people who fill you in on the situation. That's an element of, of being part of a diaspora. And that leads me almost to my next question. And you've both touched on this a little bit in your answers, but the question of identity and how being in tune or even reading, consuming media about what is going on in the homeland, however active you then are in response, how this impacts your identity and your sense of belonging. So many members of Jasper groups reflect upon their identity and this sense of belonging as if they have a foot in two or more worlds, so to speak. So for you both, how has becoming involved in homeland activism or in advocating or educating your fellow Canadians or fellow Hostland members, how has this impacted your identity? Ravneet, maybe we'll start with you. Yes, definitely. So that's a question that I found myself asking myself a lot growing up. Um, you know, being in Canada, going to school in Canada, uh, and having immigrant parents, oftentimes, uh, even within like, you know, friend circles in schools like there would be incidences where I would feel like I'm not Canadian enough but then the couple times that I have been to India um, to Punjab um, and with my interactions there I would feel like okay I'm not Indian enough and I'm sure this is and I know this is a you know sort of a experience that people from all diasporas experience um, like you said the foot in two, two worlds but uh, as I've grown older and sort of, you know, um, 
sort of analyze the storytelling aspect of my grandparents and then um, being connected to more people that belong to the same diaspora, I realized, you know, that I am a Sikh Punjabi Canadian and uh, I wouldn't call myself a Sikh Punjabi Indian. And of course, um, India is a very diverse country, diverse in languages, religion, ethnic groups. Um, but being a part of a religious ethnic group that has constantly been persecuted in India, I wouldn't identify as being with that with that state that has you know caused that caused all those social just, social injustices within um, my ancestors. So realizing. And just looking back at the social issues that I speak out um, and raise awareness on, that's sort of helped me shape my identity and come to terms with, you know, uh, I'm a Canadian and I have roots um, as a Sikh in Punjab. Growing up in a multicultural uh, city, a lot of people don't know what a Sikh Punjabi is. Um, So oftentimes I would just back in the day, I would just be like, yeah, my parents are from India. I'm Indian. But even as I would say those things, I I didn't feel comfortable saying that. I didn't in my heart identify as that. So I think now I've just through, because of activism and because of um, coming to terms with my identity, I've become more comfortable in saying, I don't consider myself Indian. I consider myself a Sikh Punjabi Canadian. And I've become more comfortable in explaining what that is to people that don't know what that is. Well, I think what you've touched on is this really interesting linkage or two-way street, let's maybe sum it up that way, between the homeland and the hostland. So even though we're speaking about how you both are actively speaking out about social issues in the homeland, we are also touching on how that affects you and your relationship with the hostland. It doesn't just go one way. So I think that's a really interesting way to look at it in that you almost be able to put in a timeline for us that you... It's changed the way that you self-identify and how you feel about your relationship with both Homeland and Hostland. Um, So thank you for that. I think that put it really well. Taiwo, for you, how is being involved, you spoke so eloquently about how involved you really are in the issues going on in in your homeland of Nigeria, but how has this impacted your identity over time? Maybe it's changed. Could you speak to that a little bit for us? I think that that's that's another very interesting but a big question. Um, big question in the sense that my identity remains what it had always been. Um, I still identify as a Nigerian, um, and the reason being that I'm the only one who is out here in Canada amongst my siblings. We are seven, so the the six of them are still back in Nigeria. So my identity and my mother is still in Nigeria, although my dad is late. And I have uncles, I have um, aunts, I have relatives, I have friends that I love dearly who still live in Nigeria. So my identity remains what it had always been, Nigeria. And I still, and I don't think even if anything changes here, I'm still Nigerian until today. But what I think has changed is my perception about life, about people, and about uh, inter-ethnic relations. And in Canada today, we have different ethnic groups. We have different uh, people from from different um, uh, races across the globe living together 
as neighbors. So I wonder, so this is where my change in perception comes in. You know, having lived in Canada for close to five years now, I've seen how people live together. Even we as Nigerians back in, back at home, when we see one another, normally we would look at each other, we would look at one another as, as, as strangers. But here in Canada, you can't look at your country, your countryman as a stranger. You see the person as a brother. Even if the person does not belong to the ethnic group where I sprouted, I still see the person as a brother. But if we were back in Nigeria, we would we would see each other or one another as different. So this is how this is why I say that what has changed about me is my perception about life, that it is possible for us to live together and live in peace. But my identity remains the same. Oh, that's interesting. And I think interesting when we consider that identity sometimes implies something changing, but I do think actually it can just be something reaffirming. So for you, it's reaffirmed that you still very much feel Nigerian and that's how you still identify. So to wrap it up, we'll get to our last question um, of today's episode. And we've already talked quite substantially about social media, but as it's the, the tool that you're both able to use most actively to, to speak about issues in your homeland, I would love to hear a bit more about how you interact with social media. Do you consume media from the homeland on your own social media? And then how do you choose to publicize or disperse information about homeland causes? Are you sharing uh, news or your own statements and opinions? Tai, well, maybe we'll start with you. I know Facebook is your uh, platform of choice. Could you tell us a little bit more about, about just how do, you, how do you advocate on Facebook? How do you engage with that? Um, so basically what I do is because I see, I read a lot of me, I read news uh, a lot. So when I see anything that I think that would be of benefit to my people back home, I take it to Facebook and I post it just for them to see that there's a possibility for us to achieve greater than what we have achieved, um, today. And then there's also... I mean, there have also been times when I would see um, something on LinkedIn, for instance, because I'm also, I'm not active. I don't actively post on LinkedIn, but I follow people on LinkedIn and I see um, what people post on LinkedIn. So if I see anything that um, Nigerians can relate with in terms of governance, in terms of development, in terms of growth, I, I would copy it or download it and then upload it on my on my uh, page on Facebook because that's where I have more following and I know that uh, my people or my friends, colleagues and family members back home would see um, these things. And so these are some of the things that I try to sensitize people about, that don't let's continue to support these people. Let's fight for our own right. We have the power. We have the strength. We have everything that it takes to it takes to change the narrative. So don't sit back. Uh, continue to fight until we win. And social media has has proved a really whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of the above has proved a really interesting rallying tool, a rallying platform for people not only to be educated about new issues, but to find ways to take action in their own communities or to advocate further. Ravni, in your experience, do you think that social media 
facilitates these linkages with home, the homeland that allows you to be more present in advocacy? And have you found that it's an effective tool to raise awareness? I know you spoke about it a little bit, but maybe tell us a little bit more about your experience. Maybe Instagram. I know that's the one you use the most. Yes. Yeah, so a hundred percent. Just going back, I guess, in history. So in 1984, uh, the government of India orchestrated these programs against Sikhs. That um, is a recent trauma that you know a lot of Sikhs and uh, in the homeland and in the diaspora carry with them. And so back then we didn't have social media, right? We didn't have Instagram, Twitter. We didn't have people in the sort of uh, people from there in the, in the field. You could say sharing firsthand experiences and accounts of what's going on. Um, but we have all that now at our fingertips. And it's so important to take advantage and use that to raise that awareness internationally within countries like Canada. Um, you know, just again, like I said earlier, to let corrupt governments know that, you know, the world is watching. So at least in the hope to deter them from not committing atrocities like in the past. Um, so for example, on Instagram, what I do is I follow a lot of journalists and um, accounts that, uh, you know, are, are in the field. They post real life experiences of real life people, the real life struggles of people. Um, and this is different a lot, of, many times a different from the news that comes out of news channels from the country. Um, and of course, there is biased and unbiased news as well. But uh, I feel like seeing those, following those real life accounts and real life people um, and sharing those and elevating their voices is uh, is where social co- media comes into play. And it's so helpful. Um, and I think it I, tr- I do truly believe that because it because those pleas of the people are elevated and broadcasted in Canada internationally, countries such as India, governments such as India's and other corrupt governments in the world, they would think twice. They would they would be careful in in the way that they you know uh, execute violence against their citizens. And uh, I think that's how social media is such an important tool uh, in activism and, you know, bringing about and bringing awareness to social justice. Absolutely. I would completely agree. I think just the, the perception of how countries even think they might be perceived or on the global stage, I think increasingly we've seen how social media, even individuals just sharing and, and raising, like you said, elevating the voices of the people from firsthand accounts coming out, I think we're seeing that growing increasingly more important for countries or advocacy groups. So it's fascinating to see the, that our individual actions um, that do have an impact, I think. So thank you both for sharing a little bit more about the ways and the means that you yourselves are being advocates and your experiences. That is all we have for today. Thank you for discussing a little bit more about transnational activism with us. Um, and how you're both actively sharing and educating. Um, Thank you. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Dispersion.
a podcast by the Zorin Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that serves the cause of scholarship and public awareness relating to issues of universal human rights, genocide, and diaspora homeland relations. If you'd like to learn more about diaspora studies or about the Zorin Institute's other projects and programs, visit our website at www.zorininstitute.org. That's Z-O-R-Y-A-N. And find us across your favorite social media platforms at Zorian Institute. Next time on Dispersion, we'll be talking to two brand new guests who share with us their unique diaspora experiences. And we'll introduce you to a new concept within diaspora studies. Find Dispersion on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.